Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 59. The Call. Al Turner fumed. Not only was that damn freakin' nature kid raising holy hell again, but Al's hemorrhoids were worse than ever. He'd used what seemed like a gallon of Preparation H, but he might as well have been smearing mayonnaise on his asshole for all the good that it did. My name's Al Turner, he said into the phone. I already called once. I'm in apartment B-303. He lives right downstairs and been screaming his head off for days. I've had it. Sir, a car's on the way. You're willing to file a formal complaint? Absolutely. I've been down here and asked him to shut up and I'm not dealing with it. He's nuts. I think you better tell your people to be careful, though. He's a huge guy. I mean, like, pro wrestling huge. Thank you, sir. The officers will be there as soon as possible. Please stay away from the apartment. The officers will handle it. No problem. I'm not going down there. That guy's a fucking fruitcake. Chapter 60. Stepping Out. We want to see. Perry stood quietly. So whose eyes are working now? All of us can see. He'd be damned if he'd let his balls see anything. That was just too fucking much. He slid his t-shirt sleeve up past his elbow, giving the triangle on his forearm a full view of Bill Miller's corpse. Yes, he's dead. You are right. Perry pulled down the shirt and turned to stare vacantly at his former friend. The situation hit home, coming to rest in his mind with a heavy, cold iron weight. Bill's blank eyes stared at the floor. The trickle of blood easing out of his nose had slowed to a stop. Blood covered the couch and carpet as if Bill had just come out of the shower, fully dressed, with his clothes soaking wet, and sat down to watch CSI. Except he hadn't just sat down. Perry had put him there. Bill's hands had steak knives jammed through the palms, nailing them to the wall. Blood streaked the wallpaper, sticky, gooey, and red. Oh, Jesus. What the hell is happening to me? He'd killed Bill. Tricked him. Stabbed him. Dragged him into the apartment, like a trapdoor spider, snatching a hapless insect back into a lightless, hopeless den. Nailed him to the wall and tortured him before letting him bleed to death. Bleed to death, while Perry shouted questions in his face. It was a shitty way to go. He'd just murdered his best friend. He should have been swamped with guilt, overwhelmed with it, Yet surprisingly, he felt nothing but a cold, icy satisfaction. Only the strong survive, and that little informant hadn't been strong enough to cut the mustard. We gotta get the hell out of here. The high-pitched searching sound echoed in his head. We need to go to Wajamega. It was a strange comment, but nothing the triangles did seemed to surprise him anymore. What the hell is a Wajamega? Now what? A where? Wajamega. In a place called... Michigan. Do you know where it is? Michigan? Sure, you're in it. I'll have to look up Wajamiga. Let me map quest it. Perry turned towards where his Mac used to sit before he remembered he'd smashed it to bits. Uh, 
I think I have a regular map. We need to go there. There are people who can help us. He felt their excitement, pure and unbridled. Images flashed in his head. A dirt road he'd never seen before. Black movement in a dense forest. A pair of sprawling oaks. Tree limbs vibrating in tune to the throbbing forest floor. And a brief flash of the green door from his dreams. Another image. A pattern. A set of lines that looked like a Japanese kanji character. The symbol was nothing from his memory. It was theirs. And it held power. Can we see? Show us! He hopped to the junk drawer. In the back was a much-abused Michigan road map. Most of the Upper Peninsula was obscured by a huge ink stain in the rough shape of a kidney bean, but it didn't mar the map's southern area. He found Wajamiga in the thumb area that was Michigan's hand shape. He folded the map a few times, leaving Wajamiga visible, then found a pen, one that didn't leak, and circled the town. Perry scrawled, This is the place. The phrase and the circled town seemed to call to him, and he wondered why he had written the words. He turned his arm so that the triangle could see the map. There was a pause, then a brief flicker of the searching sound, and then overflow emotion exploded in his body. Yes, that's it, that's it, we must go to Wajamega! Their joy felt exquisite, all-encompassing, a drug that instantly roared through his veins and pulsated in his brain. The strange symbol again filled his world. A pattern of lines and angles. The image seemed to swell before his eyes, glow with power, like some mystical talisman. Everything else faded away. The world turned to black, leaving only the symbol floating before him, powerful and undeniable. This was triangle overflow, he knew, but he couldn't stop it. He didn't want to stop it. The symbol was their purpose, their meaning for existence. They wanted it more than they wanted food or even survival. They have to build this, he thought, and I have to help them, help them build. It's so beautiful. Perry shook his head, fought his way out of the narcotic trance. His breath came in short gasps. The fear again, but different this time, different because he'd actually wanted to help them. They'd been in his thoughts before, but never so bad as that. He realized he was holding a knife in his left hand. The map lay on the counter, drops of blood blocking towns like craters of some nuclear bomb run. He saw that the knife tip was bloody before he felt the pain. Like a ventriloquist dummy, he slowly turned his head to examine the underside of his right forearm. In that short trance, he'd carved the symbol into his skin. Three inches long, it shimmered in wet red lines. The deep scratches oozed a little blood that trickled down in thin rivulets, rolling past either side of his thick biceps. He hadn't felt a thing. He stared at his handiwork. Two inch-long parallel lines started near the crook of his elbow. They were crossed by a short line, from the middle of which stretched one long two-inch line. Four horizontal lines crossed that one long line, and the symbol was finished up by two lines on the outside. It sort of looked like a child's stick figure, dancing, but with no head, no arms, and it had a rib cage. The Triangles wanted to go to Wajamiga, needed to go, the way a junkie needs another fix. Wanted to go to Wajamiga and build something this symbol represented, whatever the hell that was. If they wanted something that badly, 
it couldn't be good for him. But he didn't have anywhere else to go. The soldiers were coming, and at this point, one direction seemed as good as the next. The important thing was to get the flying fuck out of the apartment. Putting his exhaustion up on a mental shelf, he hopped to the bedroom. That strange smell hit him again. A nasty smell. A rotting smell. This time, it didn't wave away on some invisible air current, but lingered. He ignored it. He had more important things to worry about. He hauled a duffel bag out of the bedroom closet, then thought better of it and grabbed his backpack. Nothing big, just the nylon one he'd used to haul books around campus a million years ago. He imagined that hopping with a weighted duffel bag hanging from one arm might prove difficult. As he put the backpack on his bed, he saw that it glistened with spots of wet blood. It took him a few seconds to register that the sticky red smear had come from his hands. He was still covered in blood, both Bill's and his own. Time was a factor. He knew that far too well. After all, there was a man crucified to his living room wall. A dead guy with friends and co-workers who wore snappy little uniforms and who would love nothing more than to put several bullets into Perry's diseased body. But he couldn't go outside covered in blood and gore. He quickly hopped to the bathroom and stripped his clothes. They were soiled with blood, both wet and flaky dry. Perry felt the burst of overflow excitement as the triangles in his back, his arm, and in... in other places. Looked upon the world together for the first time. There wasn't time for a full-out shower. A naked sink washing would have to suffice. Besides, he didn't even want to look in the tub and see the floating remnants of the scabs that had heralded the start of this waking nightmare. The last clean washcloth quickly turned pink as he scrubbed the blood from his body. Flakes of dry blood fell into the running water. He turned off the sink, let the washcloth fall to the floor, grabbed a towel, and started drying off. It was at that moment he noticed his shoulder. Or rather, he noticed the mold. The mold was under the band-aids, green gossamer tufts peeking out past plastic edges. The fine little hairs looked like the last downy strands growing on an old man's head before baldness finally takes hold. That's where the strange smell had been coming from. His shoulder. The musty, rotten scent filled the bathroom. The band-aids remained firmly affixed to his wound. But under the strip, he saw something else, something black and wet and horrible. The band-aids had to come off. He had to see what was in there. Perry used his fingernails to pull a small corner of band-aid off his skin, enough for him to get a good thumb and forefinger grip, then slowly tore it back. The flap of skin peeled back. A gummy ribbon of stagnant black goo ran down his chest, hot at first and ice cold by the time it had reached his stomach. The smell that had only hinted at its power during the past day was now released, a satanic genie billowing out of a bottle. It filled the bathroom like a cloud of death. The dead stench instantly made Perry's stomach turn inside out. He spewed bile into the sink, where some of it mingled with the running water from the tap and headed down the drain. Perry stared at the wound, not even bothering to wipe the vomit from his mouth and chin. There was more of the viscous muck packed into the wound, like blackcurrant jelly at the bottom of a half-empty jar. The dead triangle had rotted. Horror stole his breath and made his heart hammer a triple-time beat of desperation. 
The consistency resembled a rotten pumpkin a month after Halloween. Pasty, runny, and decomposing. Green tufts of the same gossamer mold spotted both the wound and the dead triangle. Shiny black rot clung to the mold filaments. The most disturbing part of the image in the mirror? He wasn't sure if all the rot came from the dead triangle's fork-punctured corpse. Some of the green mold looked as if it grew right out of his skin, like a creeping, crawling messenger of demise. The sink's running hot water slowly clouded the mirror. In a daze, Perry wiped the steam clear and found himself face to face with his father. Jacob Dossie looked haggard and gray. He had sunken eyes and thin, smiling lips that revealed his big teeth. He looked as he had in the hours before Captain Cancer finally stole him away. Perry blinked, then fiercely rubbed his eyes, but when he opened them, his father still stared back. Somewhere in his brain, Perry knew he was hallucinating, but that didn't make the experience any less real. His father spoke. You always were a quitter, boy, Jacob Dossie said, his voice the same thick growl that always preceded a beating. You get a little boo-boo, and now you want to give up? You make me sick. Perry felt hot tears well in his eyes. He blinked them back. Hallucination or no, he would not cry in front of his father. Go away, Daddy. You're dead. Dead is still more of a man than you'll ever be, boy. Look at you. You want to give up? Let him win? Let him put you down? Perry felt anger surge. What the hell am I supposed to do? They're inside me, Daddy. They're eating me up from the inside. Jacob Dossie grinned, his thin, emaciated face showing the teeth of a skeleton. You gonna let him do that to you, boy? You gonna let him win? Stop acting like a woman and do something about it. The steam steadily clouded the mirror, slowly obscuring Jacob Dossie's face. You hear me, boy? You hear me? You do something about it! The mirror clouded over. Perry wiped at it, but now only his face stared back. Daddy was right. Daddy had always been right. Perry had been a fool to try and escape what he was. In a violent world, only the strong survive. Perry took a slow, deep breath and prepared his mind for what he had to do. Time to get his game face on. Chapter 61, The Call, Part 2 Officer Ed McKinley turned left onto Washtenaw Avenue and headed east towards Ypsilanti. Traffic slowed all around the Ann Arbor police cruiser, just a touch, even for people who traveled at the speed limit. In the passenger seat, Officer Brian Vanderpine stared out the window, far more alert and attentive than usual. Eight dead, Brian said. Man, that's a lot. It's like the tenth time you said that, Brian, Ed said. How about you give it a rest? I just can't get over this. Shit like this doesn't happen in Ann Arbor. Well, it does now. I'm not surprised, really. We got foreigners from all over the damn planet going to school here, and every last one of them thinks America's evil. Yeah, we're evil, but they sure are happy to come here and get an education from us. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the schools aren't evil, just everything else about our culture. Funny how that works out so well for them. Man, I'd love to find the bastard responsible for all this. You think the feds know what they're doing? Ed shrugged. I don't know. Something fishy's going on, that's for sure. They show up exactly when this shit goes down, 
Not before. We get no warning. Just a body count. The radio squawked. Car 17, come back. Brian grabbed the handset and thumbed the talk button. Car 17, go ahead. How far are you from the Windy White Apartment Complex? Uh, we're heading east on Washtenaw at Baldwin, Brian said. Only a couple minutes from Windywood. What's up? Disturbing the peace. Complaint is from an Al Turner who lives in apartment B-303. Says the guy below him is screaming and has been for days. The screamer is listed as Perry Dossie, apartment B-203. Brian turned to look at Ed, a quizzical look on his face. Perry Dossie. Why does that name sound familiar? I wonder if it's the same kid that played linebacker for U of M a few years ago. Brian again thumbed the talk button. Roger, dispatch. We'll check it out. Be advised. Complainant says Dossie is very large and potentially dangerous. Roger that. Car 17 out. Brian hung up the handset. Ed frowned. Very large and potentially dangerous? That sure sounds like the Perry Dossie I saw play. Brian squinted against the bright winter sun. He remembered watching U of M's scary Perry Dossie. Very large and dangerous certainly fit the bill. It was just a disturbing the peace. But he didn't like the sound of this call. Not one bit. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Chapter 62. Play Through the Pain. In through the nose, out through the mouth. One last deep breath. Focus. Play through the pain. Perry reached up with his right hand and sank his fingers deep into the wound. He didn't bother trying to control his screams of pain. He just hooked his fingers and scooped. Fingernails scraping hard against his open flesh, he yanked the triangle's squishy black corpse out of his body. The tail offered only minute resistance before it broke off, weakened by rot that had turned the body into little more than paste. Perry tossed the handful of gore into the sink, where it landed in the trails of puke and steaming water. He scooped twice more, screaming anew each time, grabbing everything he could out of the wound. 
Blood again poured down his chest, running down his crotch, down his inner thighs, to form small puddles on the floor. Pain filled his mind. Rusty barbed wire wrapped tightly around his soft brain. But he knew he had to stop the bleeding. Stop it fast. He stared at the wound. It was now a fist-sized hole, and quite a bit beyond the abilities of simple band-aids. He scooped up the bloody washcloth from the floor and hopped into the kitchen. He pressed the cloth to the wound, jamming it painfully into the hole, trying to stem the flow of blood. The duct tape was in the junk drawer, silver and big and ever so sticky. He had to let go of the wound so he could use both hands to tear off big strips of tape, which he stuck to the edge of the counter. He again crammed the washcloth deep into the gaping, bleeding wound. He lashed a piece of tape on top of the cloth, then stuck it firmly to his back and chest. Repeating the process five more times, he had a duct tape starburst with arms spreading out from the wound, over his shoulder, over his chest, down his chest, and under his arm. Wasn't exactly the Mayo Clinic, but as Daddy used to say, good enough for who it's for. Bill's friends would be here any minute. It was time to go. He used a handful of paper towels to wipe the blood off his body as he hopped for the bedroom. He jammed clothes into the backpack. Two pairs of jeans, three t-shirts, a sweatshirt, and all the clean underwear and socks he could find. With one leg rendered nearly useless and his left shoulder screaming with pain every time he moved, he pulled on his jeans. Each second was an eternity of anxiety. He expected the door to crash inward, smashed open by one of those heavy door rammers you see on cops when the police break into yet another slime pit of a house. The door rammer, on which some clever soul would stencil the witty words knock-knock, would be followed by goons in bio-warfare suits, every inch of their bodies covered so they wouldn't come into contact with the triangles. They'd be toting big-ass guns, and they'd have itchy trigger fingers. He threw on a black Oakland Raiders sweatshirt and struggled with socks and hiking boots, his ravaged leg making even this simple task difficult. Perry wanted a weapon, anything he could get his hands on, something to let him go down fighting, to go down like a Dossie. In the kitchen, he tossed the whole knife rack, chicken scissors and all, into his backpack. He grabbed his keys and coat. He didn't even give a second glance at Bill, who still stared blankly at the carpet. Bill, rudely enough, didn't bother to get up and see him out. Perry left the apartment, his eyes scanning up and down the hall, looking for soldiers. He saw no one. He realized he'd left the map inside, but he didn't need it. If he made it out of Ann Arbor alive, he knew exactly where he was going. He started to move down the hall, which was still bloody from his battle with Bill, when the triangle spoke again. And their words stunned him. It was the worst thing he'd heard yet. A hatching is coming. Chapter 63 Howdy Neighbor, Part 3 the hatching is coming. Perry's mouth went dry. His face flushed with hot blood. He felt his very soul shrivel and blacken like an ant burned by a magnifying glass. Hatching. It was coming. He'd been right. It was like the caterpillar and the wasps. He'd served his purpose, and now it was time for their gruesome exit. His big body began to shiver uncontrollably. You're... you're hatching? Not us. 
Someone else is nearby, nearby. He felt a minor wave of relief combined with a trace of hope. Not the hope that he had been saved, but the feeling that there was someone else. Someone in the same predicament. Someone like him who could understand. Perry hopped towards the stairs that led to the outside door. He didn't notice his foot hit the blood-soaked carpet. Subsequent hops left a string of footprints with wet red traces that echoed his boot's tread pattern. It felt good to be dressed again. He'd felt scummy all covered in blood, in clothes that should have been incinerated rather than washed. He was dressed and getting out of the apartment that had held him prisoner for days. His shoulder throbbed loudly where he'd scooped out the rotting triangle. The jostling backpack straps pulled against the washcloth and the wound, but the duct tape held firm. It was going to be a bitch removing that bandage. Maybe he'd be dead by then, and he wouldn't even have to worry about it. We are hungry. Feed us. Feed us. Perry ignored their words, concentrating instead on managing the stairs. He leaned heavily against the sturdy metal rail, cautiously taking one step at a time. It was amazing how much easier things were when you had two feet. Feed us now! Feed us now! A hatching is coming! A hatching! Just shut up! I don't have any food. He made it to the ground floor without incident. After days in the cramped apartment, it would be nice to be back outside again, no matter what the weather. It could be the burning pits of hell past that door, and he'd hop out whistling singing in the rain. A wave of overflow panic hit him. A blindside tackle that had his adrenaline level soaring before he realized the fear wasn't his own. What is it? What's happening? Colombo is coming! Colombo is coming! The soldiers. Perry hopped out the door into the winter wind and blinding sun. The temperature was only a smidgen above zero, but it was a beautiful day. He made it to his car and put the key in the lock when his eyes caught the lines and colors of a familiar vehicle. His mind exploded with warning. About 50 yards away, an Ann Arbor police cruiser pulled into the apartment sentryway and headed in his direction. Perry hopped around the front of his car, which was tucked neatly under the carport's metal overhang. He wedged himself between the front bumper and the overhang, hiding from view. The cruiser slowed and pulled up against the sidewalk directly in front of the main door to Perry's building. Perry's instinct screamed at him. The enemy was only 15 feet away. Two cops stepped out of the car but didn't look in his direction. They popped their batons into their belts, then walked towards the building with that relaxed, confident cop attitude. They entered his building, the dented metal door slowly swinging shut behind them. They were too late to save their little informant. They'd find the body within seconds, and then they'd come looking for Perry, shooting all the way. Brian Vanderpine was the first up the stairs. His feet thudded on the steps, which suffered the full brunt of his 215 pounds. Ed McKinley followed without a sound. Ed was always lighter on his feet, despite the fact that he outweighed Brian by 10 pounds. They didn't need to say anything going up the stairs to the second floor. It was just a noise complaint. No big deal. But given the day's events, every call had them on edge. Brian hoped Dossie lived alone. He really didn't want to deal with a domestic dispute. They were called to this apartment complex at least twice a week. Most of the time, people didn't realize how thin the apartment walls were and how noise carried. Usually, the appearance of uniformed cops at the door embarrassed the hell out of them, and they shut up quite nicely. Brian and Ed climbed the first half flight of six stairs 
then turned to head up the next six when Brian stopped so suddenly that Ed bumped into him. Brian was looking down. Ed automatically looked at the same spot. Traces of red marked large footprints on the stairs. Brian knelt next to one of the footprints. He gently touched the print. His fingers came away with dabs of red. He rolled it around his fingertips for a second, then looked at Ed. It's blood, Brian said. He'd known it was blood even before he examined it. He knew the smell. Brian stood. They both pulled their guns, then moved quietly up the steps, careful not to step on other red footprints. As they came up to the second floor, they saw the blood on the wall and the bright red puddles in the carpet. It was a lot of blood, probably from a severe wound. Large blood streaks led right under the door to apartment B203. Someone who was bleeding badly had crawled, or been dragged, into that apartment. They took positions on either side of the door, pulses rocketing, backs to the wall, guns pointed to the floor. Brian's mind worked feverishly. This blood was fresh, and there was enough to indicate the victim might even be bleeding to death. He had no doubt that the wound was caused by some kind of weapon. And if the victim was still in that apartment, he or she might be trapped in there with the assailant. Adrenaline surged through Brian's system. He reached down with his right hand and knocked hard on the door. Police! Open up! No one answered. The hallway remained deathly quiet. Brian knocked again, hitting the door even harder. Police! Open this door! He spun out to stand in front of the door. Giving a quick look to Ed, who nodded agreement and readiness, Brian put all of his 215 pounds into a push kick aimed just below the door's handle. The wood crunched, but the door held fast. He kicked it again, harder this time. The lock's bolt ripped from the wall with a splintering of wood. The door slammed open. It suddenly occurred to Perry that his car was useless. The cops would be out of the apartment in seconds. They knew who he was. They would be looking for his car. Probably wouldn't make it 50 miles, but he also wouldn't make it far on foot. The hatching is coming soon. The hatching. Some poor bastard was at the end of his triangle rope. What would it look like? How bad would the pain be? The trip to Wajamega would have to wait. He'd be lucky if he made it out of the parking lot, let alone all the way to Wajamega. There was only one place he could go. Someone was close. Someone who was also infected. That person would understand Perry's condition. Understand what he had done with Bill. Hide him from the cops, who would be swarming all over this place in minutes. Can we watch the hatching? Yes, we should watch. Yes, watch and see, see. Where is it? Tell me where to go, quickly. Not this way. Perry froze. The other voice. The female voice. It was faint, but clear. Turn around. He put his hands over his ears, his face a childlike expression of pure fear. It was all too much. Too damn much. But he couldn't panic now. Not when the cops would be rushing out of the apartment door in a matter of moments. He turned and found himself facing Building G. Hurry, hurry. This way to safety. He didn't understand and didn't want to. All he wanted to do was get away from the cops. Perry launched himself forward at a dead hop run, sprinting on the verge of losing his balance. He fell twice, hitting the snow-covered blacktop, landing face down both times before scrambling madly to his feet. 
It took him only 15 seconds to reach Building G. Brian Vanderpine and Ed McKinley would both remember every moment with total clarity. In their combined 25 years of police work, Brian's 14 and Ed's 11, they had never seen anything like the crazy shit in apartment B203. The door slammed open. Despite Brian's desire to point the gun into the apartment, he kept it trained at the floor. Nothing moved. Brian stepped inside. He immediately saw the body on the couch, bloody hands nailed to the wall with steak knives and some horrible parody of the crucifixion. Brian would check the body, of course, but he already knew that the man was dead. He tore his gaze from the corpse. The perp might still be in the apartment. There was blood everywhere. The smell hit him like a fist. The odor of sweat, of blood, of something horribly rotten and wrong in a way he couldn't immediately define. Brian pointed his gun straight down the short hall that led to the bathroom and bedroom. He was suddenly grateful for the dozens of calls he'd made to this complex. Calls that made him familiar with these apartments, all of which had the same layout. Ed swung around to his right, pointing his gun into the tiny excuse for a kitchen. Holy shit! Brian, look at this! Brian took a quick peek. Dried blood covered the kitchen floor, so much that in most places, the white linoleum looked a dull shade of reddish-brown. Even the dining table was covered with dried blood. Brian moved down the hall, Ed only a few steps behind him. The tiny hall closet hung open and empty, except for one long coat, a gaudy Hawaiian shirt, and a large University of Michigan varsity jacket. That left only the bedroom and the bathroom. That smell, that wrong smell, was stronger as they reached the closed bedroom door. Brian stood half-covered by the hall corner and waved Ed to check the bathroom, which was open. Ed was in and out in three seconds, shaking his head to signify it was empty. He mouthed the words, more blood. Brian knelt in front of the bedroom door. Ed stood behind him, a step back. They avoided standing close enough for one shotgun blast to take out both of them. Feeling his heart hammering in his chest and throat, Brian turned the handle and pushed the door open. Nothing. They quickly checked the closet and under the bed. Ed spoke. Check the wounded man, Brian. I'm calling this in. As Ed grabbed his handset and started talking to the dispatcher, Brian ran to the body. No pulse. The body was still warm. The man had just died, probably within the last hour. The victim sat on the couch, head hanging down, arms outstretched, a steak knife pinning each hand to the wall. Blood covered the area, soaking the victim's leg and leaving huge red stains on the worn couch cushions. The victim's nose was a disaster, broken and ravaged. The face, swollen, cut, completely black and blue. Blood had spilled down the man's face and soaked his shirt. Brian mentally pieced together the story, feeling his anger rise at the attack's savagery. The perp had attacked his victim in the hall, cut him, either with one of those knives or another weapon, then dragged him into the apartment and knifed him to the wall. The blows to the face either came in the hall or after his hands had been pinned. Shit like this wasn't supposed to happen in Ann Arbor. Fuck, shit like this wasn't supposed to happen anywhere. Violence in a domestic dispute was almost always followed up with remorse. Many times, the assailant would call the cops after he or she had done something to hurt a loved one. That wasn't the case here. Whoever had done this hadn't felt a damned shred of remorse. 
People who felt remorse didn't leave messages written on the wall in the blood of the dead victim. It was the worst butchering Brian had ever seen, and it would remain the number one smash hit throughout his career. Although he'd never forget a single horrible detail, it was the writing on the wall that forever symbolized the savage slaying. Numerous bloody palm and fingerprints showed that the murderer had used his hands to smear a message above the victim's hanging head. A single word, written in bloody, three-foot-high letters, that left still wet snail trails of red running down the wall. The word said, Discipline. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.